My name is Sandy Green, and today I have the privilege of reading scripture from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. My children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated if you're not already. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you all this morning. It is good to have you with us. My name is Jonathan Mosher. I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, we are so glad to have you with us today. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Well, if you've been around uh, for any length of time, you've probably heard uh, Dave and I at different points reference our, our upbringings, our backgrounds, especially as it relates to church and our growing up years and experiences. And on top of that, over the years, I've had a lot of opportunities to talk to different folks who grew up in and around the church. And one of the things that's been interesting in the conversations that I've had with people, kind of regardless of what their experience has been, whether they, uh, whether they uh, were, were born into the church and immediately upon entering the church were, uh, went through um, baptism and confirmation, kind of a more formal liturgical uh, background, or whether their experience was marked by Sunday school and vacation Bible school, the things, that, the things that people carry into their faith, into their adulthood, tend to be the same, at least in my anecdotal experience. And so as I've had conversations with people over the years, the struggles and the strengths of people who've grown up in and around the church tend to be the same. Most people, I think, who've had that experience of being around the church have at least two traits in common, and there certainly may be more, but these were the two that jumped out at me as I thought about it this week. First, they tend to all be remarkably biblically literate. And that might mean different things to different people, but when I use that phrase, what I mean is they know the stories of the Bible. They're familiar with the characters. They're familiar with the themes. For some people, they may even be able to walk you through what's known as the Romans Road, which is really just an evangelistic tool that uses the book of Romans to kind of show somebody how they're a sinner, how Jesus is the answer uh, to the problem of their sin, and how their hope of salvation is found in Christ. They may be able to reference finer points of theology, or at least 
be comfortable kind of wading into theological waters. And because of that, it's, it's helpful because we can kind of have a common language. We understand, at least by and large, what we mean by kind of the big stones of Christianity. But the second trait that I think a lot of people have in common who've grown up in or around the church is that they have had serious years-long struggles with the assurance of their own salvation. And that may or may not be the case for you. It's certainly not true of everybody. I've met people who, who were saved at a very young age, maybe led to faith by their parents or by a pastor in their church and have never had serious doubts about their salvation. They know where their salvation is rooted. They have absolute confidence in the faith that has, uh, that has carried them throughout the years. Those people certainly exist. But again, at least anecdotally, I found far more often people who have on and off struggles with the assurance of their faith. And perhaps they struggle because they were taught that their salvation was in some way rooted in the specific language of their prayer and confession. And, and now they wonder if they really believed sincerely enough when they prayed those words in a prayer. That was kind of my story. I remember at a very young age hearing a sermon that, that really, if I'm honest, just kind of scared me into faith. The idea of a hell was terrifying. And so I remember having a conversation with my parents about hell and the reality of it. And my parents, with all the best intentions in the world, um, trying to lead along a kid who was really just scared, um, kind, of, kind of led me in what does it look like to trust Christ? But the disconnect in my brain, no fault of my parents, the disconnect in my brain was, well, when I prayed that prayer as a child, did I really mean it? Did I really believe it? Was I really sincere? And it led to a years-long, decades-long, if I'm honest, struggle with the reality of my own faith. And it's something that for a lot of people carries with them even well into adulthood. Or perhaps others struggle because they have an expectation that if they had truly been born again, they'd be better than how they are right now, whatever that means for an individual. A particular besetting sin, a struggle that's going on in their life, particular temptations they deal with, they just presume that if I actually knew Christ, certainly I wouldn't be struggling the way that I'm struggling. And the problem that many people have as they begin to address these doubts of assurance within their faith is that they try to look inside themselves for that assurance. Both of those solutions, whether it's looking to the particular language that you used in a prayer or your own level of sincerity when you prayed it, or the lifestyle change that may, have been, that may have come about as a result of it, are ultimately desires to find the assurance of faith in something that you have done. That certainly was the case for me. We try to look into ourselves, either to our prayers or our behaviors or our own confidence for the assurance of our salvation. And the problem is that inevitably, it leads us further into our own doubts. Because the final assurance of our salvation does not rest in something that I have done. It rests entirely in the work of someone else, namely Jesus and so the practical question as we come to the book of 1 John is this, if we as the church are made up of generations of people who have experienced, who have experience and knowledge of the Bible, but lack the confidence and joy of their salvation in Jesus Christ, how do we then expect the next generation who has virtually no experience with Jesus and virtually no experience with the church to be drawn to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel? We're expecting them to find a hope and a joy that we may not even possess ourselves. And so the practical question for us as we come to this text today, 
or rather the practical solution that this text offers is to realize that if that description in any way resonates with your history, then this book is written for you. John actually lays out the purpose of this whole letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't want you to question and wonder and doubt and fear. I want you to have absolute confidence in who Jesus Christ is and what it is that he's done for you. And the churches to whom John is writing this letter were in just a state of confusion. They'd been infiltrated by Gnostics who made a claim of Christianity, but who also stated that by virtue of their own spiritual enlightenment, they no longer had sin. Not in the sense, by the way, that they didn't participate in things that were immoral. They did. In fact, boldly so. But what they claimed is that they had reached such a plane, such a plane of of their own spiritual enlightenment and transcendence that whatever it was they participated in physically was not actually sin for them. And the church that had heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ was looking at this and beginning to wonder, do I even know him? If I know God, shouldn't I be experiencing this same sort of spiritual transcendence that these Gnostic Christians, so to speak, are experiencing? So John is writing to give this church assurance as to where their salvation is derived. He gives us that statement of uh, of purpose in 1 John 5.13. And then last week, as we began to talk about the implications of our faith in Jesus Christ, we talked about the distinction that John makes between those who know Jesus and those who do not. He's giving us in that opening chapter a true picture of what Christianity is. And by the way, if you missed last week's sermon, please go back and listen to it because it's going to direct where we go in the remainder of this book and largely our understanding as it pertains to what the Christian life actually looks like functionally. Answering so many of these questions about the doubts and the fears and the lack of assurance that we carry into our faith. Because John's standard for whether or not you're a true Christian is not what most people would probably expect. If we were trying to write down what the expectations of Christianity are and what the definition of Christianity is and what Christianity looks like and trying to prove to somebody whether or not they actually know Jesus, we likely would not come up with the same standard that John himself comes up with. Because the standard that he sets is ironic. The the irony of the standard he sets forth is that if you deny you're a sinner, if you believe, in other words, that your life is all good, if you claim that you're a good person, that you are morally behaving well, if you claim that sin is not an issue for you, it is actually, according to John, categorical evidence that you do not know God. And you are walking in opposition to him. And brothers and sisters, that is counter to the spirit of this age, as strongly as it has ever been counter to the spirit of any age. We live in a time in which people define their own morality, define their own purpose, and define their own identity by their own standards of righteousness. Where one's self-declaration of identity becomes an impermeable standard of how everyone else must must necessarily treat them. It is a worldview that is devoid of a Christian outlook. And it is opposite of what God actually declares. See, the truth of the matter, according to John, is that everyone who has ever denied their need for a savior is inherently declaring that their beliefs, their attitudes, their actions, and their lifestyles are acceptable as is. 
They've declared their own standard of righteousness. They've set themselves up as the arbiter for right and wrong. They've made the same exact mistake as these Gnostics. In other words, they have put themselves in the position of God. But John describes God the Father as being the light. Wholly different. Untouched with darkness. Untouched with sin. That he is the standard of absolute righteousness. And sin has no part in him. And what's amazing. What's truly mind-blowing. If we'll give it the time to think about. Is that according to John. Those who actually know and love and walk with the Father. Are not those who claim that sin is not an issue in their life. But those who are aware of their sin and failure. Have acknowledged their own inability to grapple with it. And have agreed with God about their sin. That's what John calls confession. Agreeing with God. That at the point of your salvation, all of your sin, the sins of your past, the sins you currently wrestle with, and the sins that you have yet to commit were covered once for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. That if you are in Christ, there is nothing left to be done. Nothing. There is no penance to be performed. There is no atonement yet to be made. There is no forgiveness yet to be provided. God has taken all of your sins and punished them once and for all in the person of Jesus. And he has then applied Jesus' perfect resurrection life to you. So for the Christian, when we confess sin, when we agree with God about the things we have done wrong, we are not begging for a forgiveness that has not yet been provided. We are acknowledging our own wrongdoing and rejoicing in the perfect forgiveness that has already been granted and guaranteed. And we rest confident in that forgiveness because it was provided not by our fancy words or by the nature of the prayer that we prayed or the sincerity with which we prayed them or our own devotion in the faith, but rather by the perfectly sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. So according to chapter 2, verse 1, which Dave addressed last week, since we are in Christ, we are no longer owned by sin, walking in darkness, but we've been freed from the power of that sin. We've been supernaturally enabled to live in fellowship and obedience to the Father, still confident that when we sin as Christians, we have a perfect advocate with the Father in Jesus That as we sang about this morning, we can come to the throne of God, agreeing that our sin is a treacherous and tragic thing but being absolutely confident and assured that it has been forgiven in Christ already and that Jesus stands as your perfect representative before the Father. And that's actually where John continues this morning. It's the reason why we reread chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to pick up this morning in verse 2, which says this, He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I want you to think first about that first half of verse 2. Because what John just said is, not only is Jesus your advocate, which is what he said in verse 1, but he was also the propitiation for your sin. Propitiation is a word that doesn't have a lot of use outside of the church. It is one of those kind of heavy theological words. And so for some of you, it may be an entirely new idea, but it literally means, and some of your translations actually translate it this way, it literally means the atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice that made us at one with God. In other words, propitiation, according to one commentator, is the removal of the guilt of sin. 
So put together for just a moment the ideas that are presented in verse 1 and verse 2 and think about the implications that they have for your life. That the same Jesus who is your advocate before the Father, pleading your case as it were, is also the one who provided the payment for the sin that he is pleading. And the picture that John is painting in this verse is he's, it's as if when I sin, that Jesus is standing before the Father saying, Father, I know that your son Jonathan has sinned against you yet again. But I took his sin, his guilt on myself. I made a sacrifice for his sin already on the cross. The penalty has been paid once for all, and he is still in good standing in your sight. And imagine how that changes then the approach that we take in our Christian life, the way that we live, the confidence with which we approach God, the thankfulness and the gratitude with which we can pray and and live and worship. All of that is an unbelievably powerful picture. And it's one that has all sorts of implications. Because on the one hand, as we talked about last week, it means that I need not grovel and beg and cross my fingers, hoping that I've done enough to receive forgiveness, because Jesus has already provided that forgiveness and pled my case before the Father. And some hear that and immediately object, as Dave talked about last week, well, aren't you making light of sin? Aren't you making an excuse for sin? Doesn't believing that lead you to indulge in sin all the more? Aren't you making grace cheap? And my answer would be that a true understanding of verses 1 and 2, that Jesus is both a propitiation, the payment, the atonement for my sin, and the advocate for my mercy before the Father, does exactly the opposite. Because it reminds me of the severity and the offensiveness of my sin. That my sin, no matter how small I might regard it, was so serious that it took Jesus, the Son of God, the pre-existent Lord of the universe, coming into the flesh, dying on a cross, spilling his perfect blood to cover and remove it. Now that grace is not cheap. It is immeasurably valuable. And when I understand the seriousness of my sin and what it costs Jesus to pay for it, it makes me understand his love all the better. It makes me desire to love and serve him all the more. Trying to illustrate this idea in human terms is nearly impossible because it's such such an incredible idea. But, But think about it this way. Imagine for a moment just... Just imagine being in a very rough marriage. One that is on the brink of falling apart. The kind of marriage where one spouse says to the other, if you offend me one more time, I'm out. One more mistake and I'll leave you and we're finished. Now, best case scenario in a marriage like that, that spouse will mind their behavior out of a concern that if they mess up, they'll be abandoned. But what's driving that behavior? Fear. And there is no delight in that sort of marriage. There's no safety in that sort of marriage. There's no trust in that sort of marriage. There's no comfort in that sort of marriage. And listen, you are not honoring your spouse through that sort of compliance. But if my wife looks me in the eye and says, no matter what, I'm with you. 
I'll love you to the end. I'll always be here. I'll always care for you. And no matter how hard things get, I'm staying. Well, now I have a whole new motivation. I'm motivated not by fear, but by the assurance of love. And in response, I'm driven to love her and serve her and care for her because she is so good to me. And in that behavior, she is honored. See, fear is a terrible, terrible motivator for the Christian life. And it's the reason why John is going to go on to say that perfect love, which is the kind of love that we experience from the Father, actually casts out that kind of fear. It actually throws that that sort of fear aside. But at least in my experience and looking at my own life, far too often, Christians find themselves stuck in a place where fear is their motivation for obedience. But in the words of one pastor, God is not looking for your begrudging submission. Because he's not honored by it. He is not made much of in it. Rather, he is looking for your joyful obedience. And that can only come when you are completely sure that God is after your good, your spiritual flourishing, and your unmitigated joy in him. And when we see Jesus, then, as both the propitiation, the payment for our sin, and our advocate before the Father, we're now enabled to obey out of that love. But notice, then, John doesn't stop there. He also says this in verse 2, and this is kind of an elephant in the room sort of text, so we need to address it. He says he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the question that should come to mind is, does that mean that the Bible teaches some sort of universalism? And universalism is simply the idea that that everybody in the world is already forgiven, has already received a new life in Christ, regardless of what they claim, what they believe, where they've entrusted their faith. Well, it can't mean that because of what John has already said in the last chapter, in chapter 1, and what he said in chapter 5, verse 13. But it's explicitly what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what verse 2 is saying is that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to cover all sins. But it is only effectual, it only has an effect, an application in the life of those who confess Jesus Christ. Or as John Stott said it, pardon is offered for the sins of the whole world and is enjoyed by those who embrace it. Go on to verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. This is the beginning of the assurance verses, right? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And immediately everybody goes, "Uh uh-oh. My assurance is in the fact that I keep his commandments. I have no assurance. But why did John write, chapter 5, verse 13, I wrote so that you would know that you have eternal life. So there must be some sort of a guarantee. Continue reading verse 4. Here's the counter. Whoever says, I know God, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so immediately our mind asks the question, well, where's the assurance? I was promised at the beginning of this sermon assurance, and so far I'm getting exactly the opposite of that. But understand and keep in context what it is that John's dealing with here. He's combating the false teaching of the Gnostics who claimed that they knew God even as they walked in every single area of their life contrary to his commands. And John is saying you cannot make a habit of walking counter to God 
living in defiance of him, living outside of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit is not convicting you of sins that are happening in your life, and at the same time claim that you are somehow walking with him. And in order to understand this verse properly, we have to define these two terms of what it is to know God and walk in his ways. So Colin Cruz, a commentator, defined knowledge of God this way. He said, knowing him, knowing God, is not knowing facts about him nor simply being able to recognize him operating in circumstances or in other people, what is it then? It is knowing him personally for oneself. That you don't just have a knowledge about God, but that there is actually a relationship. There is a back and forth. There is an affirmation of your sonship or your daughterhood through the Holy Spirit that indwells you, a conviction of sin an affirmation of the fact that you belong to him, that even in the moments of doubt, even in the moment of hardship, even in the moment of pain and suffering in the life of the Christian, when you fall on your face before God and are screaming out for some sort of evidence of his reality, the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, groans on your behalf to the Father, praying prayers for you, heard and interceded for by Jesus Christ the Son to give you some sort of affirmation that the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is proof of who you are, and not only then knowledge, which we'll talk about more as we continue to go along, but also this idea of walking with him. And Dave defined this very well for us last week when he said to walk in this sense is to be in motion with God. It's continual action with God. In other words, John is not suggesting here that if you sin, you do not know God. That would run counter to 1 John chapter 1, where John explicitly denies that idea. It runs counter to Romans chapter 7, where Paul describes his own struggle in his Christian life. And it runs counter to a host of other texts. Rather, he is saying that if you are continually, habitually living in a way that is counter to God and are not experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, as defined by Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, you ought to then consider whether or not you actually know God. Or do you simply know a lot about him? All right, there's a little bit of assurance, but it doesn't seem like enough. Let's keep going. Verse five, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, again, here's the disclaimer. John is not suggesting Christian perfectionism which is held by certain theologies and certain churches throughout the world, the idea that once you're a Christian, you are made perfect, and if you're truly a Christian, you will never sin. And if that is the standard, then by definition, there are no Christians other than Jesus. He's not suggesting that at all. He can't have said that because of everything we've discussed so far, but what he's saying is that one of the evidences that you know God is that you're being drawn to walk with him all the more. And doing so, says John, shows the perfect work that the love of God works into the life of the believer. And what does all that mean? I think we have a skewed view of this. We tend to think of sanctification as the process of becoming better and better people. Practically, that's how most people view what sanctification is. I used to be bad, and then I became a little less bad, 
and now I'm less bad still, and hopefully this trend will continue. I don't sin as much or I don't sin as seriously as the way that I used to, but that description inherently sort of misses the point. Here's what I mean. I heard someone say recently that if you were to look at a modern saint, let's say a John Stott or a Billy Graham or maybe in our neck of the woods, a a Stuart Briscoe, someone who is widely respected for their faith, for their love of God, for their faithfulness to the word, for the way that they modeled Christianity. If you were to look at their lives from beginning to end and you were able to witness them at every single moment of the way, it would look from the outside like they're becoming more holy and more disciplined and more self-sufficient. At least that's how it appears to most people. That their internal discipline is beginning to work its way out and they're just becoming better and better and better. But that to a person, if you were to talk to them, what you'd discover is that they are more aware right now of their own shortcomings and struggles and their need for Christ than ever before. So Mark Seyfried, writing on sanctification, describes it this way. It's a lengthy quote, but please listen to it because I think it is so helpful. He says, progress in Christian life, in Christian living rather, is paradoxical. We go forward by ever going back to Christ crucified and risen for us. Christian growth often is construed as a gradual upward path to sanctification. This picture is false and unbiblical. It implicitly, listen to this because this is where it all comes together, it implicitly carries us away from Christ and the liberation from ourselves that only his cross and resurrection can give. We are not called to progress in ourselves away from Christ, but to progress in Christ away from ourselves, away from the fallen reality that determines us as a child of Adam. All progress, says Seifred, all progress is a return to the beginning of the Christian life where it enters more deeply into the wonder of God's love in Christ in the face of our sin and our misery. In other words, sanctification, which is, as you've heard us quote, is the art of getting used to our justification, is sort of like establishing a new residence. So I grew up in a town called Greendale, just kind of on the southwest corner of Milwaukee, if you're familiar with that area. I grew up in that community, and if you've ever been there, it's a really beautiful, lovely community. If you go to the downtown area, it's kind of a Rockwellian picture. In fact, they actually have this little, uh, th- th- this little uh, statue of Norman Rockwell painting a scene of the town at the center of the town. It's just kind of one of those communities, and I loved growing up there. It always felt home for me, and when I left home for the first time, I remember having just this feeling of loss. I just, I wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to the comforts of that place, the familiarity of it. I missed, I missed everything about it. And over the years, as I would go back, I'd have a feeling of nostalgia that kind of washed over me, but it felt less and less like home. And now when I go back, even though I still have so many fond memories of that community, now when I go there, I feel like an outsider. It doesn't feel like home anymore. Home is someplace different for me now. And I think in a similar way, sanctification is not some ethereal spiritual plane where sin ceases to have a pull. Rather, it's a constant return to the sufficient work of Jesus. And in walking that pathway more and more over time, sin feels less and less like home. William Hendrickson said it this way, when a person no longer feels at home in sin, 
he can be sure of the fact that he has been freed from the guilt of sin and that even the power which sin has been wielding over him is on the way out. So as a Christian, are you going to sin? Absolutely. The real question is, when you sin, does it feel like home? Or does something feel off? Verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, the gospel that I preached. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, what is this old new commandment that John gives us? Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Underline that in your Bible if you struggle with the assurance of your faith. Who loves, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says, what I'm about to say to you is nothing new. It's the same gospel that you've heard before. It's the same gospel that I preached to you. But in in another way, it's an entirely new command. And the reason that John calls it a new command is because this command was actually introduced by Jesus himself in John chapter 13, verse 34, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. And of all the things in the world that Jesus could have picked to give us a new commandment, what is it that he picks? That you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And people hear this, and immediately their temptation is to turn this into a legalistic standard of their own salvation. They think about the times where they've gotten angry. They think about the grudges that they've held. They think about the family members that have hurt them. They think about the coworker that they're upset with, the boss who mistreats them, the neighbor who keeps throwing garbage onto their lawn, whatever it happens to be, right? All of the things that make people angry or frustrated, all of the things that kind of grind away at us and bring out the worst in us. And they immediately think, well, how can I be a Christian if I'm not showing love in all of these circumstances? Well, again, we have to go back to the context. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, the true expression of this command is seen in Jesus and in you. And therefore, says John in verse 9, if someone claims that they are in the light, that they know Jesus Christ, that they've been redeemed by him and saved by him, and that they love Jesus Christ, if they claim that they are in the light, but are able to hate those who hold to the true teaching of the gospel, the teachings about sin and the necessity of Christ's forgiveness, it is an evidence then that they do not know Jesus at all. And in this verse, John is not going after the person who occasionally gets angry when someone's driving 55 in the left lane, which is completely reasonable. What he's going after is this idea of the person who is able to say, I love Jesus, but I hate these other people who love the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is exactly what the Gnostics claimed. They said, oh, Jesus is great. We want to model our life after him. Look how spiritual he was. He was so spiritual that the Messiah came down and descended on him. He experienced this transcendence that we as Gnostics now experience. We want to be just like Jesus. But when they heard the gospel, they hated it. And they hated it so much that they hated people like John who held to it. 
And what John is saying is you cannot claim that you love Jesus Christ, whose only commandment was love one another, and then go on hating one another. You cannot hate people who love the gospel and who love Jesus Christ and then claim that that same Jesus Christ whose gospel implicates your love for them, you cannot hate them and claim that then you know that Christ. In other words, if you hate the gospel, you don't love Jesus. And it changes the way that we read that verse, doesn't it? It removes the legalistic implications that people often put on a text like this, where they're going, well, wait a minute, I struggle with hatred and anger, and and I'm tempted to be frustrated and all these things. Maybe I'm not actually a Christian. That's not what John's talking about. He's saying if you can hate the gospel of Jesus Christ and hate brothers and sisters who love the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't actually love Jesus. In other words, if you make out God to be something that he is not against the teaching of God's word and you then use that position to hold hatred in your heart towards those who hold to the truth of God's word, you don't know him. But likewise, if you love those who hold to the true teaching of God's word, who claim the true gospel, who love Jesus, if you can call them brother or sister, then don't question whether or not you know Jesus. That's a bold statement. But I think it's backed up by this verse. And when we think about it, this makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? If love for those who believe and trust God is an expression of Jesus' love being worked out in you, and it is, according to John chapter 13, and you love the brothers and sisters who hold to the gospel, then do not spend your time worrying about whether or not you're a believer. Because the evidence is right in front of your face. To say it in the opposite way, if you didn't have Jesus, you wouldn't be able to love those who hold to the truth of the gospel because their beliefs would be an affront to you. Their beliefs inherently would be a condemnation of you. But if you love the gospel and love others who hold to the gospel, despite whatever other differences you may have, you can know that you know Jesus. My heart for you this morning, as someone who has wrestled and does wrestle on occasion with my own faith, I've had moments where I've gone, God, do I even know you? I know so much about you, but do I even know you? These are the kind of texts that I have to come back to. Because if I am depending on my own morality, I'm sunk. And if I'm depending on my own ability to change my life, or to see the fruit of the evidence of a changed life, however I want to define that, if I'm depending on something within me to be the evidence of my faith, rather than this sort of love, in the case of 1 John, and other evidences in other places, then I have no hope. But if the confidence that I have is not in me, but is in something that Jesus Christ has already done on my behalf and says, promises in fact, according to John chapter 13, that he's going to bring to bear in my life through loving brothers and sisters who also love the gospel, I can go, well, wait a minute, I love people who love the gospel. 
That part makes sense to me. And what John says in that verse is, don't allow that to be a stumbling block in your life anymore. It is nothing short than the tem- nothing short of the temptation of Satan coming into your life and going, you don't really know God, do you? Look at you, what a mess you are. How can you claim to love and know God? Look at what you do. Which is Satan's favorite tact for distracting and destroying Christians. And with this assurance that's guaranteed in this word in front of us, I can hardly think of a better way to express this truth together than by serving the Lord, but than by observing the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, the love of Jesus is expressed and demonstrated through the love of his people for one another. Common union gathered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ, having been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That when we come to this table, we are remembering that we have perfect communion with God the Father because of Jesus Christ, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and because of that, we have communion with one another around the truths that we hold in common. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes to be still before the Lord, to be with the Lord. And then when the music begins, we're going to ask you to come down these two center aisles to receive the elements and then to return through the outside aisles. And then please wait and we'll take those elements together. And because of what this table represents, communing with Christ and with one another, we'd ask that you not partake if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. It is something that is reserved for those who know and love Jesus and by extension know and love one another. Rather, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, take this time to think about what is happening. Take the time to read the text that's in front of you today and consider what it means, particularly in verse 2, when it says that Jesus is the payment, the atonement, the propitiation for your sin, that he loves you that much. Consider it and think about it and talk to God about it and observe what's happening as people who are around you and who love you participate in this communion together. So we're going to pray, go to a time of silence, and then we'll observe this together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. God, I thank you that you do not expect us to find the assurance of salvation in ourselves. Because what a wreck we'd be. How hopeless we would be. But God, thank you that our assurance is in you. And that the command that you gave... And John chapter 13 is an easy command for those that know you. Not because we easily get along with everybody or we never have differences even as Christians, but because inherently for those who know you and have been saved by you and redeemed by you and love your gospel, there is an inherent love for others who hold the gospel. We don't hate those who hold the gospel simply for the reason that they hold the gospel. Thank you for that evidence in our life, such a simple evidence, and yet one that is so profound and unmistakable. So God, for those in this room who are struggling with their faith and struggling with their assurance, would today be the day where they are reminded that their hope is only and forever in you? Would you remove from their mind the distractions that would cause them to wonder if they know you, if they have truly found the peace that only comes from being redeemed by you. 
only through faith in the spilled blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. God, thank you for the life that you give, for the light in which we walk, for the propitiation that you provided, and for the advocate that you are when we do sin, so that we can be confident as we come to this table. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.